This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with comes today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The Progressive, The David Pakman Show, Media Matters Minute, The Majority Report, and The Bugle. It was two years ago today that then-Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords was shot and very nearly killed outside a grocery store at a Meet Your Congresswoman event in Tucson, Arizona. Today, on the two-year anniversary of the assassination attempt that nearly killed her and that did kill six other people and that wounded 12 other people, today Gabby Giffords and her husband, astronaut Mark Kelly, launched a new political action committee. It's called Americans for Responsible Solutions. They say their goal is to, quote, encourage elected officials to stand up for solutions that will prevent gun violence. It's a new political pressure group, in other words. Congresswoman Gabby Giffords and her husband launched this group today in a high-profile, well-done media blitz. They sat together for a very moving interview with Diane Sawyer. They published a joint op-ed in USA Today where they demanded change from Washington. But they also pointed to their own unique role in this fight, not just with the former congresswoman as a victim of gun violence, but with her having been a member of Congress who was a staunch supporter of the Second Amendment. Gabby, Gabby Giffords was a very pro-gun rights Democratic member of Congress. She and her husband are not commie, liberal, pinkos coming to confiscate your guns. They are both gun owners themselves. They said today in the op-ed, quote, forget the boogeyman of big bad government coming to dispossess you of your firearms. As a Western woman and a Persian Gulf War combat veteran who have exercised our Second Amendment rights, we do not want to take away your guns any more than we want to give up the two guns that we have locked in a safe at home. What we do want is what the majority of NRA members and other Americans want. Responsible changes in our laws to require responsible gun ownership and reduce gun violence. Taking the argument beyond gun owners versus non-gun owners. Taking the argument beyond absolutist gun anarchy versus a complete gun ban. This turn away from that kind of binary nonsense is the kind of turn in the conversation that typically signifies that there might be movement ahead. That people are getting real about maybe actually getting something done. At the same time, on the same day, on the same anniversary, another overture today from Roxana Green. She's the mother of nine-year-old Christina Taylor Green, who was killed in the Tucson shooting two years ago. She appears in an ad that debuted in seven cities today, including Washington, D.C., and in Tucson. This ad, which I'm going to show you in a second, it's paid for by the Mayors Against Illegal Guns Group, which is co-chaired by New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. But the thing about it that I find striking about it is that it is not just an issue ad to try to get people riled up or even just to get people thinking about this as an issue area, as a subject. This is a campaign ad. 20 heartbroken families lost a child in the Sandy Hook school shooting. I know how much it hurts. My nine-year-old daughter was murdered in the Tucson shooting. I have one question for our political leaders. When will you find the courage to stand up to the gun lobby? Whose child has to die next? To every mother, we cannot wait. We have to demand a plan. Go to demandaplan.org and add your name. Mayors Against Illegal Guns Action Fund is responsible for the content of this advertising. We have to demand a plan, concrete action. That message today from the mother of the youngest victim of the Tucson mass shooting, which was two years ago today. And this, this is kind of an amazing detail about this. That ad was scheduled to air today in Tucson at precisely 10.10 10 a.m. local time. 
to coincide exactly with the exact time that the shooter in that incident opened fire two years ago. This is serious political pressure. This is not just about raising awareness or something or seeking donations for groups that will work on this in a generic way. This is about using awareness and concern that really already exists to make some kind of concrete public policy change in the short term. President Obama last month tapped Vice President Biden to lead an effort to put together national proposals for public policy reforms that could curb mass violence in the United States, including potentially reforming gun laws and regulations. And this week, the Vice President is getting started. Tomorrow, he will meet with gun control groups and groups for victims of gun violence. But then the next day, on Thursday, he's going to be meeting with gun owners groups, including the National Rifle Association. And that, that one detail about the NRA being invited to meet with the Vice President and RSVPing that they would attend the meeting. That is sucking up all of the Beltway's attention on this effort so far. And it's not surprising given that the NRA has already offered that their solution to the gun violence problem in this country is more guns in more places where we don't have them already. And that is not really where we expect the White House effort to be headed. But what is more interesting this time, what is more interesting about this effort is how many other people besides the NRA are at the table with some political weight behind them. The kind of political capital that they have and are bringing to bear to compete with the gun lobby, whose political power has long been feared, but who this year, frankly, has devolved into a nationally reviled political punchline. So, bottom line, sorry gun nuts, you're on the wrong side of our founding fathers. For example, in a tirade against CNN's Piers Morgan, Alex Jones said this. A little fact. I already said earlier, We're talking about England a country. has a lot lower gun crime rate because you me, took all the guns. Let me try exactly but my you've point. got hordes of people burning down cities and beating old women's brains out every day. Actually, that, that, that's, not the, that, that's not the quote I was looking for. Alex Jones said, quote, The Second Amendment isn't there for duck hunting. It's there to protect us from tyrannical government. End quote. And now that, that's an argument that's often echoed by gun nuts, as if their fully loaded AR-15 with a 100-bullet drum is going to keep them safe from a Predator drone or a cruise missile. If, in fact, that was the true intent of the Second Amendment, protection from the government, then here's a new news flash. You guys are woefully outgunned. And the Second Amendment would have allowed you to own a cannon and a warship, so America today would look more like Somalia today, with well-armed warlords running their own little fiefdoms in defiance of the federal government. But luckily, this was never the intent of the Second Amendment. Our founding fathers never imagined a well-armed citizenry to keep the American government itself in check. It was all about protecting the American government itself from both foreign and domestic threats. Pouring over the first-hand documents from 1789 that detail the first Congress's debates on arms and militia, what eventually became the Second Amendment. You'll see a constant theme. The Second Amendment was created to protect the American government. 
the James Madison res resolution on the issue clearly stated that the right to bear arms shall not be infringed because a well-regulated militia is the best security of a free country. It was his phrasing at the time. Virginia's support of a right to bear arms is based on that same rationale. Quote, a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper natural and safe defense of a free state. End quote. Ultimately, as we know, the agreed-upon Second Amendment reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That reads like a conditional statement. Yeah, if, if we as a fledgling new nation are committed to our own security, then it's best we have a regulated militia. And to maintain this defensive militia, we have to have Americans who can keep and bear arms. The other defensive option would have been a standing army. But at the time, our founding fathers believed a militia was the one best defense for the nation since a standing army was, to quote Jefferson, an engine of oppression. Our founding fathers were scared senseless of standing armies. It was well accepted among the members of Congress during the first gun debates that standing armies in a time of peace are dangerous to liberty. That's a verbatim quote. Those were the exact words used in the state of New York's amendment to the gun debate. Later, in an 1814 letter to Thomas Cooper, Jefferson wrote of standing armies, The Greeks and Romans had no standing armies, yet they defended themselves. The Greeks, by their laws, and the Romans, by the spirit of their people, took care to put into the hands of their rulers no such engine of oppression as a standing army. Their system was to make every man a soldier and oblige him to repair to the standard of his country whenever that was reared. This made them invincible, and the same remedy will make us so. Had the early framers of the Constitution embraced a standing army during times of peace, there would have been no need for a regulated militia, and thus no need for the Second Amendment. Instead, they openly opposed a standing army during times of peace. Want proof? In the entire Constitution, there are no time limits on the power of Congress to raise money and pay for anything except an army. We can have a navy forever. We have roads and bridges or post offices or pretty much anything else that supports the general welfare without limit and in perpetuity. But an army, that has to be reevaluated every two years when all spending for the past two years of army was zeroed out. It's right there in Article 1, Section 8, Line 12 of the Constitution. It reads that Congress has the power, quote, to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. End quote. The founders knew from watching the history of Europe that military coups by a standing army were a greater threat to our nation than most other nations. So they required us, in other words, a greater threat to us than other nations were a threat to us. So they required us to reevaluate our army every two years. Every two years. But without an army, how can we defend ourselves? Well, they figured with a locally based, well-regulated, under the control of local authorities who answered a national authority, militia. Today we call this the National Guard. Article 1, Section 8, Line 16 of the Constitution does not put a two-year limit on the National Guard militia. Instead, it says Congress has the right to, quote, provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing that such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers, and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress, end quote. And make no mistake about it, that militia was to be used to protect we the people, our government, both from foreign armies and from Americans who wanted to overthrow the government of the United States. 
Again, line 15 says Congress has the power to, quote, to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and rebel and, and repel invasions, end quote. Nothing in there about taking down the U.S. government. As a member of the National Guard militia, the Second Amendment is more of a civic duty than a personal right. Again, this was all about defense of the state, not defense against the state. In fact, during the first gun debate, the state of New Hampshire introduced an amendment that gave the government permission to confiscate guns when citizens, quote, are or have been in actual rebellion, end quote. To those early legislators in New Hampshire, the right to bear arms stops as soon as those arms are taken up against our We the People government. Just ask the ancestors of those who participated in the Whiskey Rebellion. In 1794, armed Americans took up guns against what they viewed as a tyrannical George Washington administration imposing taxes on whiskey. President Washington called up 13,000 militiamen and personally led the troops to squash the rebellion of armed citizens in Bedford, Pennsylvania. No army, no right to have guns to overthrow the oppressive U.S. government. But more than 200 years later, gun nuts like Alex Jones somehow believe the Second Amendment was created for, not against, those Americans who, created, who committed treason and took part in the Whiskey Rebellion. And they're threatening another rebellion should the government ban the sale of assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Seems like yesterday we were 16. We were the rebels of the rebel Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. I'm all for President Obama's and Governor Cuomo's efforts to ban semi-automatic rifles and high-capacity magazines, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that this is going to make much of a dent in the gruesome gun death toll. Every year, about 31,000 people in the U.S. die from gun violence. And when you examine that shocking figure, a few surprising facts pop up. First, almost two-thirds of those killed by guns are people who commit suicide, about 19,000 in total. Then, of the 11,000 homicides, the vast majority of these are with handguns, not rifles or even semi-automatic rifles. And of the 600 fatal accidents with guns, semi-automatic rifles are not responsible for many of these either. As a result, much of the effort following the horror at Sandy Hook Elementary won't really get at the underlying problems. And one of those problems is the illegal drug trade. If we legalized drugs, the gun violence in our cities would go way down. Another problem is simply the lack of awareness of the warning signs about suicide. As the saying goes, suicide is a permanent solution to an impermanent problem and we should all be more attuned to the danger signs. And finally, there's the violence-soaked culture we live in. And I'm not just talking about Hollywood or video games. I'm talking about our history of genocide against Native Americans, the imposing of slavery on African Americans, and the running of an empire that lives bloody war to bloody war. So yes, let's ban semi-automatic weapons and high-capacity ammunition, but let's get to the bottom of America the violent while we're at it. I'm Matt Rothschild. 
And that's how I see it. Okay, General Stanley McChrystal, who resigned after the incident involving a Rolling Stone article that uh, outlined some criticisms that he and some of his staffers had made about some in the Obama administration. Certainly no tree-hugging, lefty, bleeding-heart liberal peacenik. He was on uh, MSNBC's Morning Joe. He was asked about weapons and assault weapons. Here's the answer he had. I think he's eloquent, and I think he's making sense. And conservatives don't like him for it. And they say, hey, he's, he is part of the group that wants to take your guns. Of course he would say that. Take a listen to this. Yeah, I, I spent a career carrying uh, typically either an M16 and then later an M4 carbine. And an M4 carbine fires a .223 caliber round, which is 5.56 millimeter, at about 3,000 feet per second. When it hits a human body, the effects are devastating. It's designed to do that. And that's what our soldiers ought to carry. I personally don't think there's any need for that kind of weaponry on the streets and particularly in, around the schools in America. I believe that we've got to take a serious look. I understand everybody's desire to have whatever they want, but we've got to protect our children, we've got to protect our police, we've got to protect our population, and I think we've got to take a very mature look at that. So we're talking about background checks, we're talking about banning certain types of assault weapons, we're talking about trying to reduce the number of these guns and the ammunition that, that feeds them in our society. First of all, do you think that's possible? And would you support legislation? Would you, I don't know, go around the country and actually be very vocal about this? I think serious action is necessary. So there it is, Stanley McChrystal. And it's funny because these, Stanley McChrystal is, is essentially the epitome of what fits the kind of patriotic military career officer meme that is very popular in the US. It's probably somewhat more popular among the American right than it is among the American left. And the American right is so quick to take this guy for this one comment and basically completely throw him under the bus. Hey, he's one of those military guys that, that we need our guns to defend ourselves from. What does he know? He was not in civilian situations. He was only in military situations. What does he know about what guns are needed or civilian situations? The, the right doesn't care. They throw this this hero, essentially. He was a hero to them up until hours ago. Yeah. He's it, under the bus If now. you say anything that does not fit into their alternate reality, uh, you're out. How quickly you, things and loyalties change. You are an enemy.
This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Tori Brown. This week, Fox News hosts have pushed the false narrative that President Obama wants to take away Americans' constitutional right to bear arms. Here's Fox's Monica Crowley. Remember, his first chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, infamously once said, never let a good crisis go to waste. By the way, this Rama, Newtown tragedy, they're not going to allow this to go to waste. They will leverage that to do this fundamental transformation of the Second Amendment if they can. And here's Fox's Andrew Napolitano. Because they believe, they belong to a school of thought that believes the government can protect us better than we can protect ourselves, and we should be subservient to the government rather than the government being subservient to us. And one way to do that is to take away our guns. President Obama has said that he supports the right of individuals to own shotguns, rifles, and handguns, and also supports permanently reinstituting the ban on assault weapons that lapsed during the Bush administration. So there were 23 proposals that President Obama signed off on yesterday, uh, ranging from issuing a presidential memorandum to require federal agencies to make relevant data available to the federal background check system. In other words, there needs to be more sharing of this data across different federal agencies to uh, address any legal barriers in the Affordable Care Act for doctors to ask whether or not if they have patients who are dealing with uh, mental issues, if they have young kids or whatnot, to ask whether or not there is uh, guns in the household and whether or not there's proper safety being treated with those guns, to actually having an ATF director which the uh, Senate has uh, prevented from happening for six years now. It's been an acting ATF director uh, for allowing the ATF to use computers and allowing federal agencies to track gun sales to determine whether or not if an inordinate amount of guns that are being used in crimes come from specific stores that are selling guns and why that's the case maximize uh, efforts to prevent gun violence and prosecute gun crime. That doesn't seem so ter ter terrifying to me. To allow for the Center for Disease Control to research the causes and prevention of gun violence. To direct the Attorney General to issue a report on the availability and most effective use of gun safety technologies. And challenge the private sector to develop innovative technologies. Some people have uh, referred to the idea if you have if you require gun owners to own some type of liability insurance, it will incentivize the use of things like biometrics on guns. In other words, you need to use a certain uh, fingerprint on a gun, or you need to have a certain type of gun lock that will allow only a, uh, the owner of the gun to use that gun, because we have literally um, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of stolen guns. Um, that end up obviously in the hands of criminals, almost by definition. Uh, it, it goes on and on. There are also legislative ideas that uh, will require congressional approval. Hard to imagine we're going to see that, but one, I guess, hope springs eternal, require criminal background checks for all gun sales, 
reinstate and strengthen the assault weapon ban, restore the 10-round limit on ammunition magazines, protect police by finishing the job of getting rid of armor-piercing bullets, give law enforcement additional tools, uh, end the freeze on gun violence research, make our schools safer with more school resource officers and school counselors, help ensure that young people get the mental health treatment they, they need. So there's a wide-ranging number of proposals on the table. Uh, experts, according to Blad, uh, Brad Plumer at Washington Post, suggest that there are about five that really could have a, a demonstrable effect. Universal background checks could have a large impact on gun uh, crime. Experts say that, you know, as you know, about 40% of sales now are not subject to a background check. Experts say anything that can add friction to that secondary market could prove very helpful. Giving federal law enforcement more power to trace guns. Like I said, the ATF has a limited ability to share its data on where guns actually come from, and it can't keep computerized records. What's more, not all federal agencies are required to trace all guns they've recovered. Few of the, um, the proposals would do much to help with the problem of stolen guns. About a million guns are stolen each year. However, Congress could go further by requiring mandatory gun insurance. Again, uh, what I mentioned there, the notion of having genuine liability as to where your gun ends up may increase the use of mechanisms that prevent non-owners from using guns. I imagine this would also be safe for kids in a house who accidentally um, find guns that haven't been locked up properly. Experts um, tend to be more uh, uh, skeptical about the uh, assault weapons ban. We've seen in the past assault weapon bans are easily skirted. Um, however, maybe there's ways of uh, making them a little bit more rigid. Certainly in New York, they're now, uh, I believe they've banned a lot of semi-automatic weapons, uh, the se future sales, and if you own one, you need to register that, again, in, uh, as, as an automatic weapon. And uh, the, the fifth considered most uh, relevant would be the restriction on federal funding for gun research. In 96, Congress passed a law that prohibited federal funding for research that, quote, advocates or promotes gun control. Of course, if you find that there are major loopholes in the way that uh, guns are sold or background checks, then presumably you could fall under that, under that restriction that it would in some way advocate for gun control. This is obviously a very broad um, piece of legislation, and it has prevented the CDC from going forward with studying any of the causes and effects of gun violence and of our gun control regime as it stands now. I walked across an empty land I knew the pathway like the back of my hand 
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. President Obama came out with some sensible proposals on gun violence this week. The bans on semi-automatic weapons and high-capacity magazines, those are no-brainers. And some of his other ideas are welcome, too, like getting armored-piercing bullets off the street and increasing mental health services, especially for young people. But we need to do more on the mental health front. Let's be real here. Of the 31,000 people killed by guns in the U.S. each year, 19,000 of them are suicides. And older Americans are more likely to commit suicide than young adults. So let's work seriously on suicide prevention across the board. And the White House was frankly wrong when it said the single most important thing we can do to prevent gun violence is to make sure those who would commit acts of violence can't get access to guns. I'd say, other than bolstering suicide prevention, the single most important thing we can do is end the war on drugs. By legalizing drugs, the rampant gun violence that plagues our cities would go way down. And while we're at it, we also might try solving the problem of poverty, which is closely associated with the problem of gun violence. You can put a cop in every class, and you can make people jump through more hoops to get guns. But unless you address poverty, the war on drugs, and suicide prevention, you'll just be making a small dent in this big problem. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it. has passed the first major gun control law since the Newtown massacre. Of course, conservatives are absolutely flipping out because of it. This is considered, I guess it's being colloquially called the toughest gun control law in the nation, and it expands the state's gun, uh, assault weapons ban. It addresses gun ownership by those with mental illnesses. It does a lot of different things, and we'll go through exactly what it does. It passed the state assembly 104 to 43, after passing the state Senate 43 to 18. Now, Lewis, before we get into the meat of it, do you, when you hear of, of something like this passing broadly, do you get the sense that it will do anything to curb gun violence, or do you say, Ed, most of these things are figurative? Well, I mean, it can only help, right? I mean, if it saves one life, it helps. Is that how we, how we uh, gauge this? Uh, well, I'm not sure. Well, uh, what is the standard? 
I don't know. So what does this bill do? It does a number of different things. It bans possession of high-capacity magazines no matter when they were made or sold. In other words, they will not be grandfathered in. You, uh, want, clips holding only up to seven rounds can be sold in New York State. It requires ammunition dealers to do background checks, similar to those for gun buyers. Dealers have to report sales, including amounts to the state. Internet sales of ammunition are allowed but they have to be shipped to a licensed dealer in New York State for pickup. You have to create a registry of all assault weapons. You have to, it requires therapists that think mental health patients are a credible threat to others. If they have made threats that are credible of harming others, they have to report this to a mental health director who has to then report it to the state's Department of Criminal Justice Services. It says that any stolen gun must be reported within 24 hours. It also tightens the description of an assault weapon, and it requires a background check for all gun sales, including private dealer sales. So let me just pick out the ones I think are, 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 good, are good things here and that will actually make a difference. Requiring background checks for all sales, including private dealers, I think is very important because this, this is this gun show loophole that we hear a lot about. I think that that's key. Of course. Also, I think that stipulating mandatory gun reporting within 24 hours is absolutely key. And it really goes along the, along the lines of what we talked about earlier in the week of potential liability insurance for firearms owners. The idea that you have to make the owner responsible for whatever happens with the gun. And if, if it was stolen, it has to be reported right away. If you're on vacation, it's stolen from a home where you aren't something like that, okay, I, I can understand that there would be exceptions to this, but I think that mandatory theft reporting is important. It is. I don't think that expanding the definition or tightening the, the description of an assault weapon um, really make, I, I don't think that the de definition of assault weapon is where the solution is to the gun problem in this country, Natan. I just, I just really don't. Um, I th excuse me. I think that on if it were done on a national level, it would be effective over time, probably not immediately, just because there are so many guns already in the market. But after a while, they would start to dry up. But the fact that New York is doing it, on the one hand, guns can still flow in from out of state. Right. On the other hand, uh, I'm assuming that most of the crimes occur uh, are committed by New York residents, and this would have an effect on that. Interestingly enough, Lewis, one of the most controversial components of this law is this mandatory mental health reporting by mental health professionals. So there are critics that are saying this is unprecedented and it is draconian. And some conservative crit critics are saying this is essentially deputizing doctors it, or, or I guess, you know, many mental health professionals, most actually are not psychiatrists or not doctors. And Art Kaplan from the, uh, the medical ethics division of NYU's Langone Medical Center says this is just not the case. He says for decades, mental health workers have already had an obligation, an ethical obligation to report those they think pose a clear and present danger to others, to the police and to the person who has been threatened. Their code of ethics already requires them to do so. New York law only makes it clear how to report it and to whom. What do you think about the, the mental health reporting aspect? I think this is important. Um, we know in several instances of shootings, there were threats and uh, they weren't taken seriously. So I think this is, this is huge in preventing uh, mass shootings and murders. Um, what we have to tackle is the fact that many people will never even come into contact with the mental health system and right. therefore would never even figure anywhere in this.
This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Bradley Herring. Some in the conservative media are mischaracterizing part of President Obama's gun policy proposal. The proposal includes an executive action clarifying that doctors may legally ask, but are not required to ask, patients about a potential lack of gun safety in their homes. Here's Fox Judicial Analyst Andrew Napolitano. What business is it of a physician if a patient owns the gun? Why should the president be getting involved in this? And when he says nothing shall prohibit, the next step is physicians shall ask and report. Because remember, whatever physicians say now in this modern Obamacare era, going like this because they have to use laptops, (laughs) the government gets to hear about. But later, Fox News' Megyn Kelly debunked the right-wing myth during an interview with Bill O'Reilly. The, the Obamacare does not prohibit the doctors from asking about guns. He was trying to clarify that it doesn't ban them from asking if they want to ask. I want to read these poll um, numbers from Reuters because I think the, you, you, one has to understand what has happened in the country in the wake of Sandy Hook to also understand uh, what uh, President Obama and why President Obama did what he did this week. Um, this is a poll from Reuters taken mostly before Obama released his recommendations. 74% of Americans favor a ban on assault weapons. Uh, 26% opposed. A ban on high-capacity ammunition clips was backed by 74%. 26 were opposed. 86% favored expanded background checks of all gun buyers, including sales at gun shows, and between private parties, with 14 opposed. Uh, 14%. We have. This is a big change on these numbers. Oh, especially you have to understand the 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 background checks has been pretty constant because. The thing that, that because most people, it's one of those things where um, I think people were saying, you know, that they, that some of the Republicans are getting the benefit of the doubt at a certain time. I remember reading this last election because when they said they were going to cut people's Medicare, people literally just didn't believe them. I think Paul Ryan got some of that benefit. Do you remember reading some of those yes, stories? Yes, yes. Well, you know, the, uh, you, you've got a similar thing here, which is the background checks numbers remain high because I don't think most people, when you talk to them, actually believe there already were background checks. Right. They literally couldn't believe that somebody um, who was is a felon or a terrorist or, or running a drug cartel or mentally insane or you, you know or a serial domestic abuser and you go and go on can walk into a parking lot somewhere and out of the back trunk of someone's car could literally just show their id and they would be legal at that point all they have to show is a driver's license for them to get a 50 caliber rifle that can take down a helicopter to get uh, an assault weapon where you can walk into a school in newtown and mow down 20 kids and six teachers uh, and administrators. They just didn't believe it. So they've always been with us on that, I think, and I think the more and more we've explained this to people, uh, they've even become more steadfast. The real change is on assault weapons and on the, 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 these clips, just the fact, these, the magazines, the fact that, you know, the, these high-profile attacks, virtually all of them, there are exceptions. Obviously, the Trayvon Martin thing was high-profile, but what that led to were people starting to attack stand-your-ground laws, too. But in this particular case, from Aurora to Tucson to the Sikh temple in Wisconsin, to, you know, to what happened up in Portland, Oregon, to, I mean, you know, name any of the recent attacks, the one that people have mostly forgotten about now that took place in a, in a workplace in Minnesota that happened this summer, Cafe Racer, the shooting in Seattle, and pretty much all of these, somebody was either firing a high-capacity magazine or firing an assault weapon. And so, whereas literally, I would tell you six months ago, 
you either had a plurality of people in favor of banning assault weapons, it would be like 47 to 43 or 48 to 42, or at best you'd have it in the low 50s. Look where we are now. Look what happens when the other side fights back. Look what happens when the other side exposes the NRA uh, for being the horrors of, of arms dealers that they are um, and, and the enabler of extremists of all stripes. Uh, this is what happens, because when people get the right information and, and, and the other side you know, is out there actually making their argument, and there have been some of us who have been making this argument for a long time, but there are a lot more now. You know, um, it, it's, the, what's fascinating to me about this from, uh, a, from a, just a, a pol- politically uh, observing the, the politics of this, and it, it, there's a there's a certain consistency that we're seeing at the very least from the Obama administration on and and I perceive this uh the, this issue of guns to be a a social issue um, and that it is very much tied into the identity politics on the right the this notion of uh, it being a culture, this notion again of you know, I think there is no right wing social issue that cannot be explained by the notion that someone's coming to get something from me. They're coming to take my guns. They're coming to take away traditional marriage. Uh, they're coming away to take uh, my jobs. They're coming away to take my taxes. It's you know the the. The right wing mentality is always one that is under siege and they must, must uh, create this sense that they're under siege as a way of activating their base. And whether it's the loss of traditional values or whatever it is, something's always under attack. They're coming to take our guns. They're coming to take our freedom. They're coming to take our liberty. Uh, they're coming to take our way of life, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah, I don't, I, I, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. I thought well, you were but it seems to me that uh, President Obama, we've now seen him um, basically evolve when it comes to marriage equality, embrace that issue, uh, support it, when the numbers got to be about 51% or, yeah. or more. Uh, we saw President Obama embrace uh, choice, and people for, tend to forget that, you know, it was not that long ago, maybe eight years ago, 2004, I think it was, where we heard the Democratic Party sort of attempting to make a shift in the same way they did in abandoning uh, sensible gun control back, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, where they were starting to say, like, we have to reach across and understand the sensitivities here. Well, that was thrown out the window in this last election, much to the benefit of the electoral prospects of President Obama. And, uh, and, I, and I would peg that to the point where, uh, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services put out that um, that fairly uh, innocuous ruling about uh, health insurance needing to provide birth control. Frankly, and it and it it basically the the right took the bait. Santorum ran with this. It seriously uh, hurt and uh, forced Romney to move to the right. Uh, and we saw it with marriage equality, and now we're seeing it with guns. That uh, right. that the administration made the determination that. We have reached a tipping point where if we come out now, we're going to push that needle even further, but it's beyond the tipping point now. And in some ways, it's it's working out, it it would appear, uh, in a similar fashion as to marriage equality and um, uh, basically the argument that women have sovereignty over their own body. Right. Well, you and I, look, you and I have discussed some of these issues for a long time, not just issues as in 
specific political issues, but communications and other things from the White House and how that first term it often just seemed like they didn't want to fight, and especially if they thought they were going to lose. Um, and, the, you know, uh, our friend Digby wrote a great post about this the other day about the importance of having the fight, of making the argument. Even if you don't win, the rights understood that for years because they right. moved the ball. You know, they moved the chains. They moved what, what is possible the next time around. They attacked Social Security that first time and fail, but they're back again five years later. And that doesn't seem as crazy because it's been done before. Right. You know, and that was what was driving us, I think, crazy. Also, just the fact that you have this bully pul- pulpit. You have a way to move numbers. You have a 13, 14 million member email list that trumps the NRA membership or the membership of the National Right to Life Committee or any other group like that. And you just want to be like, use it. You know, use the stuff you have to you and, and your high approval rating. I mean, what more evidence do we need from this past election? I mean, besides the four gay marriage proposals going through, I mean, an open lesbian was elected from Wisconsin, which is a state that has a lot of rural areas, by the way. Um, it, she wasn't elected from Massachusetts or right. New York. She was elected from Wisconsin, which, again, is a lean, lean Democrat, uh, Democratic swing state. But still, you know, I, it's just, I get so tired like, of the myths. You know what I mean? Of dealing with the myths, and that's what we've dealt with the NRA. And you break it all down in the end, you know, the, which you could by studies done by people like Paul Waldman, or you could just look at, you know, electoral results, and, you know, on your own this time, and you would see, they, you know, they had a 0.83% return on investment, the worst of any group. Everybody, pretty much everybody who stood up to the NRA this past election lost. People that were too pro-gun were beaten in primaries by more progressive people. And this happened again on gay rights, and this happened on women's rights. We elected a whole crop of fantastic women. The entire delegation from New Hampshire now is women. But you and I now, we can be all right. We just hold on to what we know is true. You and I now, though it's cold inside. The The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Andy, this week the president attempted to flex his political muscles and give America tickets to his gun show, where he would be firing off plans to introduce gun regulation. And introducing gun regulation to America is not an easy thing to do, Andy. It's just not an introduction that has gone well in the past. America would like you to meet gun control. Gun control meet America. Oh, hey, gun control. Go f*** yourself. <laughs> what? <laughs> myself? You're out of your mind. You need me, buddy. I need you to get the f*** out of my face, gun control. You're not welcome here. No, what? People absolutely want me here. I've got two friends that want you to leave right now, Mr. Smith and Mr. Weston. Get the f***. Okay, you two, let's slow this thing down. (laughs) It was a bold, bold move from the president after attempting to deal with health care and now 
attempting to tackle gun control, he's tried to catch two of the most elusive chickens in America's political coop. <laughs> so much so that when he announced his intention to deliver a speech outlining his gun control plans, you could feel part of the country reacting by saying, hold on, only a week ago it was too early to even talk about gun control, and now suddenly you're actually going to try and do something about it. Are you out of your mind? This is America. <laughs> well, we have the right to never do anything about anything. <laughs> I think that's the Ninth Amendment. <laughs> I, I may be wrong about that, but it doesn't matter because the point is that I'm still free to say that it is the Ninth Amendment. <laughs> I think that's the Fourth Amendment. <laughs> or is that your right to free bagels? I can't remember. But, okay, Mr. President, if that is your real name, you want gun control, shoot. Oh, I'm sorry, you're probably going to ban that word too now, aren't you? <laughs> Let me put it a more appropriate way. You want gun control, get it in the most effective way. Line it up in your sights, scream, look at me, and then shoot the problem in the face. <laughs> so he's called for a ban on uh, assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Mm -hmm. uh, and wider background checks on people buying guns. Now, I mean, it's, very, it's one of these quintessentially American issues, John, that's very hard for outsiders yes. to comprehend. And, I mean, is it, is it the case that in that controversial Second Amendment, the Founding Fathers wanted ordinary citizens in the 21st century to be able to carry assault weapons with high-capacity magazines and not have their backgrounds checked before they bought them. I mean, they didn't seem to say so explicitly, but they didn't not say so explicitly either. So you can see the confusion. Yeah. Well, the, the ironic thing about gun control and the basic impossibility of passing it is that the vast majority of Americans are in favour of some form of gun control, but somehow that isn't enough. In other words, some form of gun control is something that around 80% of Americans want, but that 20% of Americans say that you can prize from their cold, dead balls. <laughs> Obama announced his intention to issue 23 executive orders to the consternation of the conservative press here, although the truth is there's actually very little he can do with executive orders alone. Anything significant is going to have to go through Congress, and everyone knows this. In fact, at the announcement, the president even read out a letter from a little girl called Julia, uh, who had written to him after the uh, Connecticut massacre, saying, you know, in the letter that Julia wrote to me, she said, I know that laws have to be passed by Congress, but I beg you to try very hard. <laughs> he then went on to say, so I wrote back to her and said, dear Julia, you have no f***ing idea what I'm dealing with here. <laughs> sure, I'll try very hard, but please try to get your tiny head to understand that these people are f***ing crazy. <laughs> The logic of the gun lobby seems to be that if Hitler hadn't had a handgun, he wouldn't have been able to shoot himself, so he'd probably still be at large today. <laughs> and, but he, oh, that, 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 is, that is true, Andy. That, that, that basically is a logical extension to all these Hitler analogies at the moment. <laughs> but uh, the, the figures, I was reading some figures that suggested that there are more firearms than people in uh, in the USA now, which... Um, yeah, that's entirely plausible. Well, explain why there, there, are four, there are 40 times more intentional homicides pro rata in America than in, in the UK. And partly, I guess, you know, we're slightly more buttoned up as a nation. We don't let it all spill out. But um, I think it's clear that guns are dangerous, John, and I think any buglers that fought at the Battle of the Somme would acknowledge that. <laughs> so what were these tyrannical 23 executive orders then? I'm sure they were pretty extreme in rounding up gun owners modifying guns so they can only fire marshmallows, legally mandating that all guns be shaped like penises. <laughs> they must be pretty good, so uh, let's take a look. Executive Order 6, Andy, was um, publish a letter from ATF to federally licensed gun dealers providing guidance 
on how to run background checks for private sellers. Publish a letter? <laughs> that is one of his key solutions. Getting the ATF and gun dealers to basically become pen pals. <laughs> what, what about the police? You know, they have to deal with uh, military-grade weapons on the streets. What do they get? Let's see. Uh, executive order number 13. Maximise enforcement efforts to prevent gun violence and prosecute gun crime. So, so that seems to basically be an executive order saying, try harder. <laughs> oh, come on. Obama is supposed to be a tyrant, not a little league coach. <laughs> he, he's asking Congress for much bigger laws, such as uh, curbing sales of semi-automatic weapons, as you mentioned, and large magazines, both of which are ideas exactly as good as they are also certain not to happen. Uh, another suggestion is for Congress to require, again, as you say, a, a, a universal background check for anyone trying to buy a gun, to which your first response, especially as a non-American, is, hold on, you don't already do that? Holy shit, that seems dangerous. <laughs> that seems like it should have happened with the very first rifle sale back in frontier times. Uh, sure, I'll sell you this ri rifle. Very exciting to... Uh, be the first rifle seller. Um, enjoy her. She's a beauty. But just before I do, I hope you don't mind, I'm just going to ask around with a few people just to make sure that you're not a complete maniac. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm not going to sell this weapon of death to a stranger without any kind of background check, because that would be f***ing insane. <laughs> well, it's clear. I mean, it's a tough issue for a bomber. He's really had to bite the bullet on this one. And, well, it's not easy biting a bullet when it's being fired into your mouth at point-blank range from Charlton Heston's handgun. But it's all about the timing, then. You've got to bite the bullet and chew the bullet and then spit the bullet out, reformed into a commemorative lead figurine shaped like a dove. It's a very high-tariff manoeuvre for an American president. Uh, the president signed the executive orders in front of a group of children in a far-from-original form of slightly manipulative political stagecraft. <laughs> and even this became controversial with Rush Limbaugh, the uh, fully qualified shithead. <laughs> I mean, fully qualified, Andy. He claimed the president was using the children as human shields. Now, here's the thing. Isn't that technically exactly the opposite of what he was doing? <laughs> Isn't he trying to literally shield them from gun violence? I think those kids would probably take that trade-off, being physically protected, if they have to briefly, metaphorically protect someone else. I still think they come out of that deal pretty well. Uh, given that the, uh, the Second Amendment and the, the right to bear arms was ratified in 1791, perhaps there's a, a loophole here, John, that will enable you know, nothing to be done, but just a, you know, a slight tweak of this amendment that will allow people only to fire a weapon that is an exact replica of a 1791 firearm whilst wearing a <laughs> wig and silly clothes, and address any resulting wounds with historically authentic medical treatments, for example, getting a dog to bark at it or bleeding to death. Um, the uh, US Constitution was adopted in uh, September 1787. It was ratified in May the following year and went into effect in March 1789. Now, just six months later, they tagged on 12 amendments. So I think they realised they'd made a flu few bloopers in their excitement, they were probably drunk, John. Understandable, they were exciting times. They just won a key civil war. They rushed these 12 amendments out on the same day. They were probably hurried a bit. They probably didn't sit down and discuss now how might these words be interpreted in 220 years' time in what all our predictions suggest will be a time when civilization will have advanced so much that all forms of media will be balanced, factually accurate, and geared towards improving the sum of human knowledge and happiness, apart from the odd podcast. Do you think... The wording, as it is, of this amendment, people might view it as carte blanche for everyone to wander around with the tools of mechanised slaughter in their pockets. 
No, Georgie, uh, I'm sure they won't take any notice of this in 220 years' time. I'm sure they'll be smart enough to see this as a document of its time that will need occasional tweaking and twerking as the world changes and develops. Yeah, good point, Jeffo. Uh, let's just chuck this out to get things going and assume people will be grown up enough not to let this become a divisive issue of personal and national identity. Right, Amendment 3, since we're all eternally wise and fair, uh, should we do something about not allowing people to enslave other people, or should we hang fire on that for 75 years? Yeah, good shout. Okay, who likes women? Yeah, who wants to establish their equality as a species and or gender in this little constitution of ours? Just kidding, let's whack that on the back burner for another cheeky hundred. Okay, 120. 130, done. Uh, now, right, compulsory for all men to wear powdered wigs. That will never change. Let's write that one in. Write it in. <laughs> in what was generally a pretty excellent speech, uh, President Obama even played the Reagan card, saying weapons designed for the theatre of war have no place in the movie theatre. A majority of Americans agree with us on this. And, by the way, so did Ronald Reagan, one of the staunchest defenders of the Second Amendment, who wrote to Congress in 1994 urging them, this is Ronald Reagan speaking, urging them to listen to the American public and to the law enforcement community and support a ban on the further manufacture of military-style assault weapons. And in case you're wondering why on earth Reagan would be for gun control, such as background checks and you know, an increase in mental health resources, it's probably something to do with the fact that, that um, oh yeah, he was shot by a mentally ill man who illegally purchased a firearm. Um, I'm guessing that sometime around the point that he was clambering off the pavement and into the back of the presidential motorcade before bleeding his way back to the hospital, he thought, yeah, something should probably be done about this. Yeah, but that's just a knee-jerk reaction, John, isn't it? Letting his own personal experience cloud his objective judgment. Hey, this is Mara from Pittsburgh, and I'm calling in reference to your comments about how we talk about rape and rape victims. Uh, I, I appreciate the thought you've put into this, but I think the situation is a little bit more complicated than you're acknowledging. So, just from personal experience, right? imagine being a young girl and being told for the first time that you should never walk alone at night. Why, you ask? Because your parents say you might be attacked if you walk alone or you're told that you should not get drunk at a party, even if you're not driving. Why, you ask? Because someone might try to take advantage of you. The implication of saying you should or you should not here is that you are responsible, at least in part, for your safety at night or your safety at a party. Thus, if you do not take these precautions and you are attacked, there's something you should have done but didn't do, and so you are at least partly to blame. My point is that I don't see how you can coherently say, on the one hand, that there are things that people should do to protect themselves, and on the other hand, that they aren't responsible at all for what happens if they don't take those precautions. Responsibility and blame are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. However, I believe the same thing you do, that the victim of a sexual assault should never be blamed for that assault. I'm not saying that I have the answers. I struggle with what to tell my own daughter. Uh, I struggle with teaching her ways to reduce the likelihood of being victimized without instilling in here a sense of responsibility for whatever happened. Right now, we just talk to her about likelihoods. It's 
still possible that you could be attacked even if you walk in a group at night, but it's less likely if you walk in a group. Thus, if you're attacked when walking in a group at night, it's not your fault. Nonetheless, it's still a good idea to take steps to decrease your chances. I don't know if this is the right thing to tell her, but it makes more sense to me. Maybe you don't see a difference there, and maybe other people don't see a difference, but the difference is very real to me. It wasn't until I started thinking about it this way that I could let some of my own self-blame go. So, my two cents. Thanks, Jay, for everything you do. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. And I just wanted to say that your comments at the end of the uh, trigger warning episode, the violence against women, were spot on. And I think that one of the problems that we have when, for instance, teaching our children is about the victim blaming is systemic. It's in the language that we teach them. Keep your bike inside or somebody will steal it. You know, don't talk to strangers or you'll get kidnapped. It, there's the, the language of it, it's hard to convey the nuance, especially when we're children, so we get ingrained with that ideology as a precautionary measure that, you know, don't talk to strangers or they may take you away. Don't, you know, leave your stuff out or somebody may steal it. It implies that it's their fault, and we make the mistake of saying, you know, well, your bike got stolen because you left it out, not because some jerk stole your bike, but because you left it out. And at a pragmatic level, we're focusing on what, what we can do about those people that didn't get the memo that stealing isn't cool or that you know, kidnapping isn't cool or rape or whatever. And we try to get the point across the best we can. And I agree that, that you know, if we can have somebody submit something to the show that you know, gives us the cliff notes on how to better express this without ingraining from a young age that somehow it's your fault if you get victimized because you didn't take precaution X, Y, and Z, that would be hugely useful. And uh, I just like to say, I think I think your comments on that were, were, were spot on. That, that we need to decouple that. And I think the, the the difficult part is the simplified method of that, which is you know when we tell our kids to keep their bike in, how do we not ingrain the idea that it's their fault their bike got stolen? or you know that's their you know their their cousin's fault when they get when they got kidnapped when we're trying to impress upon them that they should talk to strangers like their cousin did or you know or that kid on the news and uh, i just like to say you're spot on there and i think uh, that's something that needs some serious attention thanks bye hi jay this is matt cohen from maryland and uh, just got finished listening to the show on religion and fundamentalism. Um, I have to say I cringe at uh, the stories, just like you do, about like Mike Huckabee saying things like, um, these school shootings happen because we won't like God in school. However, I do have to say I myself am an evangelical Christian, and so I, uh, I wonder sometimes why there's such a broad spectrum of evangelical Christians, which includes fundamentalists and people that believe all these wacky things. I just wanted to assure you there are actually some evangelical Christians who believe reasonable, logical things. Um, the way I define evangelical is someone who believes the Bible is the true word of God, Jesus is God's son, and that Jesus calls everyone to faith and repentance. Now, that may sound fundamentalist to a lot of people, 
but I can assure you that um, there are people that believe that, like myself, who are reasonable and logical, and um, people who do not think the U.S. should be a theocracy and do not think gay demon exorcisms are a good thing. Um, a lot of these people um, believe in reformed theology, which I would encourage you and your listeners to look into. It's a really awesome uh, division of theology in Christianity, which I think is probably the closest to what the Bible intends. Three people I want to throw out there that you could look into that are really good at this. One is this radio show called The White Horse Inn. You can visit it at whitehorseinn.org. And the main guy on there is Michael Horton, and he's written a book called Christless Christianity. Another is um, a pastor called Tim Keller, who's written a book called The Reason for God. He, um, in that book, explains a lot of the reasons why people should believe in God and answers lots of objections of, like, progressive and liberal people, which is really excellent. And probably my favorite is by a guy called Francis Schaeffer. He wrote um, many books, but um, one of his best is called The God Who Is There. And he just um, goes through a lot of contemporary philosophy and theology and talks about um, why um, a, an evangelical understanding of the Bible and of faith is a good one. So just wanted to assure you there are evangelical Christians out there who are not crazy. And um, please go bu- keep up the good work. Love the show. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I definitely second that call for any uh, thoughts or suggestions on how to discuss the whole uh, current paradigm of you know blame versus preparedness. At, you know, As Mara pointed out, it's sort of two sides of the same coin, which is, I think, a good way to sort of show how interconnected the two are. And how difficult it would be to decouple those, you know, I I think it really does require not just sort of a a new way of talking about it, but a new way of thinking about it, a new, a whole new paradigm. And that's the thing about paradigms. They're, (laughs) they're hard to change. Uh, They're sort of massive, all encompassing thought processes. And uh, yeah, so it's tricky. But, you know, the one story that comes to mind on this topic is that Dave Kohler is this guy. He's actually the producer of the Young Turks, you know, one of the producers or executive producer of the Young Turks. And I heard the story years ago on their show talking about how Dave, I think primarily he rides his bike to get around. But I think he also has a car that's not necessarily particularly worth a whole lot of money and that he leaves it either unlocked or unlocked with the keys in it. And, you know, when everyone on on the show was saying, well, that's crazy. Why would you do that? He explained, well, hey, you know, it's not my job to prevent someone from stealing the car. It's their job to not steal the car. Like they would be the bad guy in that scenario. So like, hey, it's it's not it's not my job to stop you from being a bad guy. And yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting story. It, it, it makes people think. Well, that's crazy. You should still lock your car because there are bad people out there, you know. But it's uh, it, it at least shows that some people are capable of thinking outside of that current paradigm. It just kind of makes you wonder what price they may end up paying for doing that. On a totally unrelated subject, though, I want to bring everyone up to speed on my polar bear plunge that it happened. Uh, I survived, as did everyone else who took part. So, you know, I I mentioned before that as part of my sort of like promise to donors that I would ride my bike 
to and you know, I wouldn't just jump in the water, but I would ride my bike the 15 miles there and back uh, to the event. And I made that promise at a time when it had not snowed at all for the entire winter season in Washington, D.C. And so, of course, the, the two days before the event, it snowed both days and stayed below 30 degrees the whole time. So not only was it about 25 degrees when I was riding my bike to get there, but there was also snow on the ground, you know, on, on a lot of the trails. And so, you know, I would be lying if I said that when I started my ride, I wasn't a little bit nervous as to what sort of conditions I was about to meet. But I, I'm happy to uh, discover myself and to report that it was really much, much less dangerous than I expected it to be. There were plenty of, uh, you know, bike tracks through the snow on, on the trails, um, and, and I didn't run into any you know, actual ice, you know, there wasn't like black ice that I was going to bail on. It was snow. It was okay. Got through it. And, and, you know, then the event itself went about as expected. You know, I say, you know, this is my third time doing it. I say every time it gets worse each time I do it. And this was definitely no exception. It's really quite, um, unpleasant and painful, but it doesn't last very long. So that's good. But, you know, as you, you know, you get in and as you come out, your whole body sort of contracts. You think I'm having a little bit of trouble breathing and, you know, but then you get out and you warm up and it's not so bad. And, and, and then everyone's happy about it kind of inexplicably. And so then you sort of feed off the energy of the crowd. So that works. But, uh, you know, so, so that, that is over. I want to thank everyone again for uh, donating. I, I got past my goal by the end, uh, raised more than $2,000 towards the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. Uh, so they were very appreciative of that. And um, and then I just want to let everyone know what the next big upcoming thing is. This is not a fundraiser, don't worry. But um, the the next big uh, sort of climate related event happening is February seventeenth. That is the uh, President's Day weekend, and it's another giant protest. Uh, against the Keystone XL pipeline being put on by 350.org. So just go to 350.org and look for the uh, Keystone XL pipeline protest. Uh, you know, we're getting, they, they're estimating between 25 and 30,000 people uh, to come to the National Mall. And so if you're available and anywhere in the area or you can make it to the area, uh, definitely come down for that. And, and you'll be hearing more from me on it as the day approaches. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who supports the show, either by becoming a member or making donations. That's absolutely how the show survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com black and white took apart a picture that wasn't right burning on a shining sheet the only maker that you want to need a dying man in a living room whose shadow bases the floor